good morning. Time for the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2 X. Now it's a really foggy, gloomy, overcast kind of a day. The sort of day where you could go outside and not even know where the sun is, which is kind of a good metaphor, I think, for the subject we're going to be discussing today, which is dementia and things that go on inside the brain. I cannot imagine a condition more challenging for our personal identity and uh, challenging for people who are around people affected by dementia. And I'm very pleased that today we have a couple of guests who are making this their life work, studying dementia, its causes, its effects, its treatment, and with practical hands-on help for people who also suffer from dementia. And uh, welcome Associate Professor Jeff Louis, who is from the ANU Medical School. Morning, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. And Fiona Wilkes, who is a PhD candidate studying dementia and related condition, Huntington's disease, which we will get to in more detail. Good morning, Fiona. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. Now, uh, Jeff, the condition of dementia, I think it covers a range of things. I don't... My understanding is it isn't a single thing. What, what's broadly, can you, what are the categories of dementia? What describe it for us? So the broad category of dementia could be best described as an age-related disorder in which people lose brain cells and that progressively affects the, the functions of their brain and their interaction with the world because the brain is an important part of a person. These disorders are mostly nowadays thought to arise from abnormalities in the protein function in the brain where accumulation of abnormal proteins seems to cause a cascade of problems resulting in brain cell loss. And when you lose brain cells in the brain, it affects the functions that are related to those brain cells and that causes the different manifestations and thus the different types of dementia. So the, the, the manifestations of the illness are related to how the brain cells are lost, the pattern, both spatial and temporal, of the loss of the cells, and that impacts on the person in terms of their day-to-day -day living and function. Oh, they've used a couple of technical words there, spatial and temporal. We might yeah. go back into those in a yeah. moment. But first, what are the broad categories of dementia? Because there's multiple types, I believe. Like for example, there is Alzheimer's. That's only one type of dementia. Is that correct? Yes. And the way that we classify dementias relates to the, the time that they have onset. There are actually some dementias that arise in earlier life to, to middle life, and they're called younger onset dementias. And they would include some subsets of these other types of disorders such as Huntington's disease and Parkinson's disease where people can develop a dementia. It's not inevitable in these disorders, some, in, some, more than, some aspects more than others, but uh, these can have early to middle life. And then in later life, people can develop dementias from more age-related causes. And the, the predominant type, both in younger and older onsets, in terms of the population risk of getting a, a dementia, is, of course, Alzheimer's disease. That's still more common, generally, and that is because it has the most... Uh, it's got the it's the most common sort of change that is found in the brain that seems to predispose to 
developing dementia and these relate to the proteins that accumulate is is alzheimer's it, i think it tends to be used as a, as a catch-all but it actually is a particular type of dementia is it is that correct yes that's right it's one one particular type of dementia that is uh, diagnosed in relation to the accumulation of specific proteins in the brain so the technical definition of alzheimer's disease is actually from seeing the brain tissue after people have passed away so it's actually when you make a diagnosis in life it's uh, something that you estimate as a very probable highly probable almost definite but you you can't prove it until people have passed away until recently now we can detect some of the proteins in the brain by using types of brain imaging where you can lay radio label the uh, proteins is it something that uh, doesn't show up in an MRI scan you can detect some of the changes, early changes in, on an MRI scan if you know where to look. And uh, that is part of what is being developed further in a lot of the research at the present time. But there are specific uh, radio, uh, techno radiation technology uh, imaging techniques which, which can allow people to see the abnormal proteins in the brain such as the amyloid and the tau protein which are essential proteins for brain and other parts of the body function uh, uh, related to the nervous system and these can accumulate in these disorders and they can be the accumulation of these can be caused by genetic changes but it can also be caused by brain injuries so one of the recent things that people have been concerned about recent in in the news media and you may have read about it is is about head injuries in in football all codes of football even heading the football in soccer may predispose people to de developing dysfunction is, is, is that where they would have the initial injury but the symptoms do they show up later are they immediately apparent or does they take a time to to, to appear immediately apparent in the concussions usually that people accumulate with these sorts of in uh, with these sorts of injuries and so that has been one of the concerns uh, with with the sports where you have a lot of uh, head injuries from contact sport uh, uh, the longer term effects can be can be manifest in early to middle life and there've been deaths of of american footballers in their mid 40s with quite severe they they donated their brains in one very tragic case the gentleman was very depressed and he, he shot himself in the chest and asked that his brain be donated so that he could see whether their brain changed and unfortunately they did find that he had quite a lot of abnormal protein suggestive of a dementia process uh, now, now jeff actually yeah this is a bit of a left field question but yeah. It's one that came up to our Ask Fuzzy column in the Canberra Times and Fairfax uh, in the last week or so, and the reader has asked me about consciousness, mm. and he said, why is it that a blow to the head uh, can affect your consciousness? And he said he, he can understand how it might if there's like gross brain injury, mm. such as you know the structure of the brain is, is, is affected and so on, but he said, if you, why is there an immediate effect? Do you... I know it's a bit a question uh, not on notice, but do, yeah. do, do you have a willing to speculate on that? Well, it's not directly my area of expertise, but the issue with maintaining consciousness is that it relies on a lot of brain systems to function in, in synchrony. We think that 
in fact, consciousness is, as a result, it's an emergent property that are, results from all the brain networks working together in, in synchrony or in coordination in more simpler terms. And what happens when somebody is hit with a, a large blow and results in a concussion that causes loss of consciousness is it affects the mechanisms that maintain wakefulness and consciousness. They are situated in the brainstem and they're particularly vulnerable to head injury because the twisting motion of being hit on the head usually is, is the biggest risk and that's, that's why there's such a risk with, with boxing or injuries that cause a twisting motion to the head because they can actually tear little blood vessels, damage cells and, and thus cause a, a loss of consciousness because it disrupts the, 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 the emergent quality of the consciousness and the, and the mechanisms oh, for yeah. staying awake. Yes, yeah. we're, we're into really difficult territory when we're talking about yeah. consciousness, aren't yeah. we? Yeah, it's not my area of expertise, no. Yeah, and I think that's described as being the hard problem of... of <laughs> but um, so I, I would guess that there's a disruption to the blood flow and a very immediate disruption, perhaps, and in a severe case, then tearing maybe of the fibres inside the brain. But then that's serious gross damage, I guess, if you're getting... To, to that sort of point. That's what we think happens with boxes, but uh, if you actually tore blood vessels, that'd probably be fatal because it's pretty. The blood vessels are fairly fragile at the base you of the brain. Stroke, perhaps. Yeah, and it can happen. It can happen suddenly. There have been people who've had uh, injuries. There's a particular in. It, it's actually in. Can happen in in certain types of uh, unexpected manoeuvres in some of the contact sports. In One example was uh, someone who was doing a, a contact martial arts sport and there's a specific blow to the carotid artery which you're not supposed to execute. And if you, if you disrupt the carotid artery, that is generally not good because it cuts off at least half of your blood supply. And in that case, that was reported that it killed the person, which is one of the aims of that type of strike but you shouldn't be doing it to someone in a competition or you shouldn't be doing it when your life isn't depending on it oh okay well we we promised never to perform that maneuver on fuzzy logic now um Fiona, your research is into Huntington's disease, mm -hmm. and I had to acknowledge my terrible, woeful ignorance before the program. I've, I know the name; I've heard it plenty of times. But what is what is Huntington's disease? Okay, well, in in a very basic nutshell, it's one of the neurodegenerative diseases that Jeff was talking about, which can cause a dementia <clears throat> but it's one where we do know an awful lot about the genetic basis of it so it's inherited and the way that it's inherited is if you get the particular gene for Huntington's then you if the gene changes are enough because it's based on a repeat of a certain code and a build-up of this repeat number is pathological so it's it's it causes changes in the brain which cause neurodegeneration so if you have this gene change you will get Huntington's and you can pass this on to your children and then if it gets passed on to your children then they will also develop it and what it causes is it causes again a build-up of an abnormal protein which leads to degeneration within the brain which is a little bit of what we look at it there are particular areas which break down before other areas and then <clears throat> lead 
I think because Jeff's a clinician and I hopefully will be one soon, uh, which lead to then clinical outcomes, which it's a movement disorder primarily. So changes within the brain from this build-up of protein lead to a loss of control of movements. But the disease process continues and as well as the movements, there's in a sense a loss of control of behaviour and of emotion as well, which carries on and can lead to a dementia, can lead to a, a total debilitation and then it will cause death. So it's, it's one, of the nastier, uh, one of the most nasty diseases I think that there is. But luckily, I think a lot of people don't know about it because it is quite rare as well. And part of what we're researching is more into these changes that happen within the brain and so that we can recognise what's going on and hopefully go towards developing a treatment because at the moment there's absolutely no cure and while there are some symptomatic treatments, there's nothing which changes the process of the disease. So one of those things that affects a whole wide range of things going on in the brain. Mm. So what are the, some of the immediate symptoms? So you mentioned physical change. Let's start with that. What, what would be a visible, perhaps, uh, affected if you met somebody with, with Huntington's? Yep, there's a, it, it's quite hard to describe over the radio, but the movements that, we, uh, that you get with Huntington's, now admittedly, this is, this is when you say that, yes, this person has Huntington disease, but we know that there are changes before you get the motor onset, but because these movement changes are so characteristic, that's a lot of what gets focused on, and it's a, the, you, it, the areas of the brain are the same that are in Parkinson's disease, or similar areas. And in Parkinson's, you, a lot of the movements are stopped. In Huntington's disease, you actually get a disinhibition of movement. So you get these vast jerky movements, which are kind of dance-like, which we call a chorea. Very difficult to describe, but it's spelt C-H-O-R-E-A. If anyone wanted to look it up on the internet, there are some other videos on YouTube, for example, of the movements. Uh, and that's what you start getting. And they are very early on, while you can't control the actual dance-like Korean movement, you can control then what you do with it. So people will seem like they're becoming quite twitchy and always having to... Uh, fix their hair or fiddle with things and it's because actually this movement has started and they can't do anything about starting the movement but they can move it then into something else. Oh and I have to say at this point that Fiona is waving her arms around. Madly about. <laughs> yeah so, uh, th so this is large scale movements that she's just moved her hand up towards her hair as if she's about to brush her hair off her face. The, so this is um, is it a little bit different to like a, a Parkinson's person seems to have a real shake, like almost like mm. a stutter movement in their hands. So it looks a little bit different to that. It's quite different to the, trem the tremor from Parkinson's. Yeah. They don't tend to get a tremor. Now, have you... You've yeah, a, a gross sort of oversimplification, which, mm -hmm. which is one way to understand it as a lay, lay person is in Parkinson's disease, brakes are on, and in Huntington's disease, brakes are off. And that's really hmm. part of what, what Fiona is describing there. Now, yeah. I imagine you're meeting some people, you encounter people with Huntington's disease, is that right? Um, we have a little bit. A lot of what our research is 
Not so much to do with the people. My research project is based around the changes within the brain and there's a group in Melbourne called there's the Image, Image HD research group who are the people who meet these people and do a lot of assessment with them, measuring their movements, measuring emotions and IQ and a whole heap of other cognitive uh, variables but what we then have is we have all of this information and we have their brain scans and a large part of what I'm doing is looking at these areas within the brain that change and having a look at how this affects all of those measurements that the people in Melbourne have done so there are these lovely areas well sorry lovely is a really odd word but for a scientist we get excited when we see when we see changes and we can explain them but there are these areas which degenerate and we can have a look at the tests that have been done on movement and go right we know that this particular area changing is in some way related to this movement that we can see and so you can see physical changes within the brain that are directly correlated with, with motor and other changes that you can see in the person. So it's, I mean, from a scientific point of view, it's just lovely. From, a, from an individual person's point of view, it's obviously an awful disease. But our aim is to understand more about it again so that we can hopefully do something about it eventually. Yes, th this looks like really challenging, very technical sort of work, looking down microscopes, slides, uh, chemical analysis and so on. Well, we're on Fuzzy Logic today and we're talking dementia and related conditions with our guests, Prof Associate Professor Jeff Louie and PhD candidate Fiona Wilkes from the ANU Medical School. And we might cut to a break and it seems kind of appropriate that we're going to do a bit of uh, a bit of Rolling Stones, who sadly didn't get here on their tour. It's there for you here on Fuzzy Logic. Shame they didn't make it out to their concert tour recently uh, because they are a great classic group. Oh, these blokes must be all about 70-something, are they? Mm. The Rolling Stones members? They are in their 70s, yes. Yeah, so maybe actually this is a good uh, segue uh, for our guests, by the way. Associate Professor Jeff Louie and PhD candidate researching Huntington's disease from the ANU Medical School. We're talking dementia. Age and dementia, is it almost inevitable that if you live long enough you're going to get some sort of dementia? It's one of those ones that's hard to answer in a simple way. It depends. But yeah, it depends is probably the best way to say. It's more common with ageing because we think that dementia arises from a whole lot of different things going all wrong at the same time and that that is probably the most likely explanation and why it's been so hard to work out methods to prevent the illness there are things that we know in terms of lifestyle that can be protective and these have been from population studies such as the study done in Kungsholm and in in Sweden where people have aged in place for decades and they were sort of things that you might expect on common sense basis, being socially connected, interested in life, keeping mentally active, physically active, keeping fit and well, feeling that you have a fulfilling job, all these things. Yes, yeah, so we're, we're getting to some of the things you can do to mitigate your risk. Yeah. But uh, what kind of strikes me yes. is the, the variability. So I think what you're saying with yeah. the age is it's, it's a risk factor. Absolutely. And yeah. now, so my grandmother died yep. not uh, last year, aged 105. Yeah. Remarkable lady. And you think of the changes yeah. in the planet. 
across her lifetime but she was sharp as a tack yep. and she was pretty well with it I believe right yep. to the end and so some people go right to extreme old age yes absolutely so it's there's no there's no there's no necessary necessarily uh, any de de decline in function with with aging but people do vary a lot more with aging but then people in general do vary a lot and i think one of the problems is is a concept that sometimes people have is ageism that all old people are the same but all old people were just people who are young people who are now older and they were all different then and they're all different when they're old as well so there's a lot of variation in cognitive function as people get older some people will maintain their function, some people improve their function, some people decline in function. So it's not inevitable that people get dementia. What, we're, what most of the research is trying to work out what are those factors that lead people more to develop dementia. It's certainly much more prevalent with ageing over the age of 65. Your risk is probably about 10 or 15% that you might develop it. And then when you get up above uh, 85 and not many people necessarily survive over 85, so that's the other factor. 25% of people might have some degree of dementia. So the, the, the statistics do stack up with time, but the thing is that one of the, thing, one of the major issues is that you have to survive to get certain types of illnesses, and this is also related to other types of illnesses of aging, like some of the cancers. And I guess as you get into uh, old age, extreme old age, just as general wear and tear on the brain, and maybe you wouldn't define that as being dementia, but it's just, like I say, the, the brain is getting old and tired yeah. and the, the, the machinery doesn't work quite as well, yeah. but it's not necessarily dementia. That's right, and you yeah. can get a category which is quite ambiguous in a lot of ways called mild cognitive impairment, where people, you don't have to be much into your middle age to notice that sometimes it's harder to retrieve the 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 names of things that you used to know quite well when you're younger you know like a lot of like a lot of people yeah, so we were, yeah. we were talking before yeah, we went yeah, live yeah. about research on a text textual analysis of agatha christie's writing yes yes and that that research showed that it became less complex the language construction mm. became less complex as she aged does that kind of make sense yeah is that what you'd expect to see yeah that's a possibility that that could have happened. It would depend on, on that. I mean, there have been research at the other end, which we mentioned before, also about which Fiona talked about, the, 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 nun, the nun study, where, which was done uh, by a researcher called Snowden and his group, where they studied nuns entering the uh, the nunnery, and they had to write a personal statement to say why they wanted to join the order. And the uh, they found that that had quite a interesting level of prediction about the risk of people developing dementia when these nuns allowed themselves to be studied and scanned over decades and also to donate the brains when they passed away. So that was a very telling study about their life trajectory and that relates to what we were talking about, about ageing as a risk factor for developing dementia. Well, I guess that writing a piece, or like a complex piece hmm. of fiction, you know, it, it's a very involved task. There's a lot of things you've got to do. You've got hmm. to, to structure the sentences. You've got to... Hmm. The, the, the flow of logic has to make sense. You've got the ideas, the themes, and so on. Hmm. And so it's a pretty demanding thing that the brain is doing when you're, when you're pursuing this. So... 
I guess it kind of makes sense that, that if your brain function isn't quite what what it should be, then it's detectable. Yeah. 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 Does, does ever you either of you stop to think about? Wow, isn't this just amazing? That here I am. Look, look, we're talking on the radio, and and that's actually there's there's a huge amount going on there. Do you ever just stop to think at what an amazing thing the brain is? Almost all of the time, yes. Yeah. I, we're very lucky to be in the field that we're in because it's so very exciting, all of the things and all of the people around the world who are researching the brain and we're finding out new things every day. It's a very, very exciting field to be in. Hmm. So, yeah, I stop and think how lucky I am all of the time. Do, do you think we'll ever get close to really, really understanding it or do you think it's always going to be deeply <laughs> mysterious? I... Uh, my undergraduate degree is in neuroscience and I did a year of honours um, at the research school of biology looking at honeybee brains and one of my supervisors then very wisely said because I've, I've always been interested in in brains and and she said to me oh do you expect to understand a human brain when we don't even understand the honeybee brain yet and that's so very much smaller so it's uh, look. I think maybe eventually we'll get there, but I mean there are so many things that we just don't know, and I think that's what makes it so exciting. Does, does it also strike you that there's so much going on in our brain that we really don't understand? I mean, we're not conscious of. So that uh, like, like I've just put my hand up and I've made a certain gesture, and I didn't even really decide to do that. But somewhere deep in the layers, there something said. Um, you know, make, w wave my hand around, like, and meanwhile my heart is pumping, my my yeah. lungs are going. So consciousness is is this is what we were discussing before, isn't yeah. it? That um, is it a necessary thing that all of the things have to be hidden from our consciousness because otherwise we'd be just too busy. Oh, pump now, breathe now, wave hand now. No, that's sort of how they've evolved, and that 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 is part of what the part of the brain's uh, part of the brain's network that we study. It's called the what we call the subcortical connectome. It's all the structures that help to subserve other functions or underpin all the other functions that allow us to do things such as talk on the radio and manage looking at people with, you know, in a studio and and remember to to pronounce things correctly. All the things that we have to do consciously. They take up our cognitive space in the in the in the in the in the active part of our brain, and the other things we do automated, such as my strange gestures when I'm talking and and maintaining my posture in the chair and and all those sorts of things. They're they're run by this sort of subcortical connectome, and that's a strategic part of the brain. That's why we we study it because it's actually very closely connected to all the processing and the higher order function parts of the brain where we think that some of the processing occurs like trying to work out what colour uh, clothing you put on together and that sort of thing. Do, do, do either of you have an opinion, I, I know we're getting way off dementia here, but mm -hmm. uh, on the on the brain-mind dualism thing that you know that your brain is the mind, that the, 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 the actually separate things, how, how do you feel about that? From my point of view and, and from the conversations that I've had with various people about this, and it, it's something that people who are interested in brain do, brains do actually talk about quite a lot, is that to such a large extent you are very much your brain. I don't think there's much of a dualism really. It's uh, So is it a case perhaps that uh, when we, we propose this dualism thing that 
we don't have an explanation of it and it just seems too difficult so we invent something do you think that's kind of like a simplistic way of solving the problem <laughs> yeah well i think it's historically risen out of 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 uh, the, the, that cartesian dualism that you know i think therefore i am but you actually you know and i did warn you that i do tend to make bad jokes it is a no-brainer in this sense that that actually that the brain is part of a person and the person is in an interactive with the world so the brain is actively engaged with all our sensation all our feeling so there isn't necessarily a dualism all the all the hopes futures thoughts the the lovely experiences we have the sad experiences uh, we have are experienced through the brain and the body together mixed together and also melded together because that's that's what we are as a as a living organism and this is i think the term you used earlier today was mm. emergent yes so a very complex system yes has properties that emerge and are crudely speaking mm. and an example is that two people together can lift an object that is heavier that they could yeah. lift individually that's right yeah um and a lot of it i think is also we were discussing before we went live about a network so we tend to think of the neuron as being the powerhouse of yes. the brain yes so what's what's your opinion on on this network thing can we explain what we mean by network mm. <laughs> well a network is, is a highly connected yeah collection of things isn't it yeah. you know it's, it's, the, it's yeah. connectivity that matters is that yeah would you, would you say that absolutely i think there's and i think it's very interesting because the way that we're taught these things you do at least when i started my degree you you're first taught about right this is this bit of the brain and this is what this bit of the brain does and it's on a very simplistic level of okay so if i take a little electrode in and i prod this spot i will make this person's finger move and that's then right one bit does this but in fact it's much more complex than that and as jeff was saying about the the subcortical connectome well yes while you need this particular area to move this finger the process of moving that finger is actually done by an entire network working together to make the decision to move to go through these pre-programmed movements which we have to go right we want to select this movement out of the entire range of movements that we could be doing to then go back to make the then conscious decision to move and then all the way down to moving the finger mm. and while yes there's that particular network with movement we also have other ones going in slightly different directions but through the same areas which are dealing with emotion and with thought and with anything else that you can think of isn't really just based on one area it's based on everything working together and then that's where you get the problems with disorders like Parkinson's and Huntington's disease is that you get this breakdown in these key areas within the networks and all of a sudden, all of the things that they're connected with stop working properly. Hmm. Uh, that's amazing, Fiona. Um, and so it, it's about the, the the connectivity about... So in something like Parkinson's or Huntington's and so on, 
Now, my dim understanding is that it's to do with the, in the, at the chemical level of the brain, but those things affect the connectivity of the parts of the brain. Is that yes, exactly? Is, well, they all all of these connections are made through chemicals. So if you don't have enough of the chemicals there to send the signals, then it can have the same effect as losing these areas. So yes, in, in Parkinson's disease, it's fundamentally a lack of dopamine and dopamine has such an impact on the way a lot of these signals are sent through these pathways that it will then affect motor output and various other things. Whereas in Huntington's disease, you actually get a death of the neurons in those central pathways first. So it's not so much a neurotransmitter problem as a problem with all of the physical pathways. Ah, so, okay, physical more than chemical. Physical more than chemical in one, right. whereas Parkinson's is very much, a, at least initially, there's a chemical problem, which is why we a lot of the there are drugs for Parkinson's which can alleviate some of the movement things by, on a very simple level, right? We don't have enough dopamine. How do we get more dopamine in those areas? This I think is a remarkable topic to me because it's a very deep philosophical thing we're discussing here, because the the alternative view is very reductionist. And what we're talking, I don't want to use the word Zen because maybe I'm getting a little bit too far out there, but it's, it's about, and, and you can get a slightly ethereal and abstract, and I'm, and I'm mm -hmm. waving my hands as I do this, making some kind of cloud motions. Yes. But um, it also strikes me that we see it in, in another practical way, which is unrelated to you, but in uh, consumer electronic devices. Mm-hmm. So the pad things, right, and our yeah. phone things, yes. they're not about the smarts that we used to get in our PC. I've got a bigger PC with more hard disk and more CPU cycles than you mm. do. It's about our con connectedness to each other and to content and stuff like that. Mm. And it's also about how we relate to the world as, as a living organism. And that is why some of these devices have been designed to be tactile. Because part of our evolution as humans was our tactile abilities you know as privileged over over sense of smell i mean humans have a pretty sad sense of smell compared to dogs and dogs have a tremendous sense of smell and incredible part of their cortex is developed for 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 olfaction similarly for for our related mammals such as the, the cetaceans the whales they have incredible uh, temporal lobes which allow them to navigate in three dimensions and the interesting thing is that there's a type of brain cell that is common between in in certain types of higher order mammals such as the uh, the cetaceans and 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 some of the primates these neurons called von economo neurons uh, which uh, uh, a very clever scientist at UCSF a guy called Bill Seely has demonstrated that these types of cells that are maybe unique amongst these higher order uh, species tend to degenerate in particular networks in a particular type of dementia called frontotemporal dementia which is actually a group of different types of dementia and so these the strategic nature of, of the network and that's what's really interesting about brain science is that it brings all the if if you let it it brings in all these fields of of, of scientific knowledge but also humanities that that are interesting and can be synthesized because that's what people are people are are not just 
uh, a scientific, not just an organism. They're also interactive. They live with the world. They interact with the world. They they have uh, connections, and and these are all the these are all brought in. And the network science that was and, mentioned. And it also strikes me that yeah. there's levels of connection, connectivity. So we've got connectivity way down in the micro yeah. uh, neural level of the brain and the synapses and axons yeah. and so on. And then at the higher level of, across regions of yeah. the brain. But then I think maybe what you're alluding to there, Jeff, is uh, outside the individual as well. Yes. So you and I and Fiona, yeah. we're having this conversation in the studio. We're beaming out across the country. We're on the internet. Yes. Uh, on fuzzy logic dot, uh, mm-hmm. fuzzy logic on two double x dot podbean dot com, where you'll find our podcast. Yeah. Uh, we're going out over um, streaming on the internet and so on. But the effects, the social effects of a person with one of these diseases must be quite, quite troubling and quite, quite deep. Yes, to, yes, yeah. That, to, to cope with. Yes, that's right. And, and that's why, you know, in, in clinical care, because we are in the clinical field, that, that is important because it can, be very, it can be a very difficult situation for the person and their family because sometimes people with the illnesses may not recognize that they're unwell, but their family members may become concerned as they can no longer function as well as they were previously but also because as you hinted that people don't really have in their day-to-day life uh, though increasingly that is changing perhaps an idea of what that you can have these disorders that impair your brain function and thus affect your personality so then that 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 is sometimes difficult for people because people think oh he's having a midlife crisis or he's changing in personality they don't really think that someone might be developing a, a dementia, yeah. and that can be really difficult because people can get fired. We we see it in clinical care. People get fired from jobs. People get performance managed. It can be really tragic. Yes, I think I think we might go into yeah. a bit more on the personal experience. What's the inner dimension of of yeah. suffering from one of these conditions yep. here on Fuzzy Logic? I think we might take a little break, and mm-hmm. we're talking about animals, yeah. and here's a bit of John Butler Trio and Zebra. Our guest today, Associate Professor Jeff Louie and Fiona Wilkes from the ANU Medical School. We're talking dementia. All being well. And a little bit of zebra there here on Fuzzy Logic, John Butler Trio. And we're talking dementia today, which is kind of how I feel some days. And our guests, Associate Professor Jeff Louie and Fiona Wilkes from the ANU Medical School. Now, just before the track, we were discussing the notion of what it might feel like to actually experience. How, how does a person... Well, how would a person experience something like dementia, Jeff? Is it... I imagine to be very unsettling maybe yeah would it, would it be a, a permanent state of confusion do you think not necessarily at the early stages people might notice declines in their function it depends to the extent that the person watches for those sorts of things not everyone has that level of interest in their day-to-day performance all of us obviously at some level like to know that we can do things and we sort of take it for granted in a lot of ways so that's why i think sometimes people miss the fact that they're not performing as well we're very sensitive to it as 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 people who are health professionals because as i as i was talking with some gps at a meeting the other day we've all got to know our limitations because our sole role 
is to provide service and care for our patients. So we need to know when we're making mistakes or having errors so that we can correct them and, and provide the right care. So we're quite sensitive to that idea. But And I think a lot of people in specific for, you know, service professions are. But And that's not to say that people, lay people, don't think about it. But it's not that usual to to check yourself and say, oh, so am I doing this right or wrong? Okay, so you really what you're saying, I think, is it's about the expectation, it's about how we measure our own performance. That's right. And, and, a, and a colleague of mine at work has mm. a son with a microcephalus, yes. very small brain and probably yeah. a seriously reduced um, mental capacity. As yes. a, and I said, well, how, how does he cope with that? And he said, well, think about it. This, you know, He's got his cup is half full, but to him, that's his world. Yeah. So it doesn't make sense for him to measure himself no. by the standards that you or I would, would would do. And so the little kid is happy. Yeah, and you were talking about philosophy as, as well during the break. It is that old maxim, know thyself, from, from ancient philosophy. And uh, you need to know yourself to be able to pick up these things going on. But family members can be concerned because they can say, oh, look, you, you seem to have forgotten to pay the bills for this last few months what's what's sort of going on and they're the sort of signs that some things might be going on in terms of the general organization and cognitive abilities and also changes in behavior where people are sort of uncharacteristically rude or 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 um irritable not not seeming to cope with situations as well so it could be quite quite multiform there's quite a variation in in the impact and that can be really hurtful for the person but also for their family that that's why it's important to provide humane and supportive holistic care to people and that's that's generally so done w- w- well. would you say that there isn't yeah. a single experience that people have that it, no. it's as, as diverse as we are as individuals mm-hmm. absolutely absolutely that they you know the cases you know and i'm i'm going to give the sort of de-identified example was uh, i knew that uh, we uh, years ago uh, looking after some 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 patients one person said look i i'm i'm a mathematician and i i've i've changed already all the professional details so i'm just saying that uh, i i wrote this formula and i derived this formula 2 years ago i can't do the steps in it anymore there's something wrong with me he knew because that that's something he could do every day and he just so picked it up. Yardstick they could measure themselves he over could, time. He could because right. he, he derived the thing and you know all the steps. And he said, "I can't work out how to go step from A to B." And that can be easier with some people who who do check their abilities day to day. But in other senses, uh, you know, another example might be someone who uh, is working as a mechanic, and then they they know how to how to uh, disassemble the equipment, but then they just disassemble it but then they can't put it back together again that's you know a high order skill as well and the mechanics are very skilled indeed and then they just don't get, can't work out the sequence and there seems to be some reason why people often revert to uh, um, past lives and i don't mean reincarnation but to earlier stages in their own life do we know why that is you know like yeah. for somehow they're, they're living a life that was 30 years ago and yeah that's because of the way that the brain seems to store uh, memories and, and personality elements in, in the network of the brain. That the memories, we don't have a hard disk like a computer. 
in fact most of our memories as far as the recent research on memory and I'm not an expert in that area but with something that we're very interested in is that they actually reconstructed from a, a sort of node or from a, a central point and uh, there's strategic parts of the brain that help in this such as the hippocampus which Fiona has, has studied in, in Huntington's disease that, so that these these memories are reconstructed so they're not a true storage as you've got on the hard disk or on the USB stick that you have in this room so they're not a true rendering which is why things sometimes look rosier and rosier as you recall very positive memories and, and sometimes you forget very sad memories which is good which is generally healthy for people forgetting is an important part of human life as well so the the, the problem with that is is the, the so when people go back to their past it's those memories that are strongest and the most well preserved things that they might have recalled very pleasant things and the memories of their parents and so at the end stages of dementia people often do think that they are much younger and they recall, they ask for their parents, they ask for their, you know, and they may not, the sad part that's difficult, they may not recognize their spouse because their memory of their spouse was when they were 19 or 20 and when they married, because this is sometimes when the old, older people married quite young, and they sort of see the person beside them, but they don't recognize them. They recognize the voice and their, their you know, their, their, their sort of fe feeling about that person, but they don't recognize the old person yeah. next to them. And, and for a person who's observing that, yeah. that would be possibly heartbreaking mm. even. But for the person yeah. themselves, if they don't remember something, then do they know even know perhaps what they've lost? They can be frightened sometimes because they'll see themselves in the mirror. And that's one of the s sad parts later in the illness to say, who's this person in the mirror? Oh, and that's terrifying for oh, people. Yeah. It can be Actually, very existential. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, there's, an, there's an old... There's an old Nor Norse proverb which is inside every 75-year-old is a 25-year-old wondering what the hell happened. And a lot, yeah. it turns out a lot of the research shows that most people think of themselves being in their sort of 20s and 30s, even when they're 80. It's quite an interesting concept. And, and, and a patient said that once to me, and I'm, I'm sure they wouldn't mind me saying it, was he said, I, I think I'm 30, but when I go up the stairs, I remember I'm 75 because I creak, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, will they say um, live long enough to be an embarrassment to your children? Or <laughs> well, yeah. Um, yeah. So now we've, we, we're kind of running out of time for sure. this question, but um, sure. my impression is there aren't cures for these things. There are things that alleviate the symptoms. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, so. Do you see a verticomers? I'm doing the rabbit ears thing in the air now. <laughs> um, a cure on the horizon is one possible, do you think? Uh, we're in speculating, perhaps? <laughs> there's an awful lot of research towards it, so I think there's always, there's always hope. From what we have so far, though, we're still in the symptomatic treatments, although they're certainly getting much better. There are a lot more options now for a lot of these things than there were five, ten years ago and there's a, there's a lot more scope towards there being more options as well soon. But in terms of cure, then I certainly wouldn't be putting any money on that happening soon. So we, we, we seem to be in a similar sort of territory to nuclear fusion, that it's always some, you know, it's conceivable but it's out there somewhere mm. on, the, on the horizon. Am I being 
excessively neg um, pessimistic well, here? Probably to be fair, it's similar to cancer treatment. There's right. still not a lot of cures for cancers, though there's been some incredible advances with some of the very fast cancers. The characteristic of cancers, and I'm not a ca cancer expert, but the very fast cancers, they can often cure, but, the, the, uh, but not all of them. And they've made incredible advances in their field from very smart researchers. Uh, we'd probably be happy to have some of their researchers mm -hmm. in our field, though they'd probably beat us at everything. So, <laughs> now, uh, I, I take it that the advice for our listeners who mm -hmm. know somebody or think they might be affected by somebody, uh, by possibly one of these conditions, seek professional advice, go to your GP S first. See your GP, absolutely. Mm -hmm. You should see your GP. Uh, and and hope for the best and hope that it's not what you have but and maybe it's not maybe it's just you know you there are a lot of things that could be stress yeah, yeah, other yeah. life conditions perhaps. that's right that's right and yeah. that's why it's important to see a gp as, as as a sort of comprehensive health care so they can check for things that could be going wrong well it's been a a, a, a great privilege to talk to you both and what a thoroughly fascinating topic anything to do with the brain i just think is amazing and i think you are both amazing people to be working this and, and thank you very much for your time on Fuzzy Logic, Associate Professor Jeff Louie and Fiona Wilkes, PhD candidate. With thank you. So thank many you. things on the go at the moment. Thank and you. speaking of things on the go, uh, let's have a quick recap of what's on our Ask Fuzzy column. Today uh, our Ask Fuzzy team member, Karina, uh, um, she has written an answer to why are tsunamis only a few centimetres high way out in the ocean but they're really big when they hit the shore mm. my own metaphor is it's like a rolled up carpet mm. you know out and when it's unrolled it's only thin but you roll up as it hits the shore a uh, bit more complicated than that but that that's near enough <laughs> and i think of the wave as tripping over its own feet as it hits the shore but it doesn't travel like a train but anyway i digress uh, next week we have one on hand washing. Does it make any difference whether you use warm water or not to wash your hands? <laughs> and uh, Jeff's got his eyebrows going up and down. And uh, if I had time, I'd ask his opinion on what the uh, standard medical uh, procedure is on that. Uh, someone else has asked about mucus. Why do we have mucus? And again, I would had more time, I'd ask for your opinion there, Jeff. And one which also, like we mentioned, cancer briefly in passing. Mm. Can you contract cancer through a transplant? Interesting question. And yes, he's nodding. And so there you go, all coming up on the Ask Fuzzy column in the Camera Times, syndicated across Fairfax. And it's been great having your company today. Look forward to plenty more action coming up here on Fuzzy Logic. Catch you later. <laughs>